Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. Well, we are nearing the end. We have a few more weeks, a couple more weeks of our sermon series through Hebrews called Hold Fast. And um, as we are nearing the end, as most of our uh, biblical writers do, they like to add in how all of the theology that we've just gone through, how all of these magnificent, magnificent statements of Jesus being our high priest, um, what does that mean for our daily life and our daily um, living? I was serving my first church out of, out of a seminary in Chicago, and there were some Sundays in the dark uh, winter of Chicago that I, quite honestly, did not want to get out of bed and go and lead worship and do all of the things. And so I asked uh, one of my uh, mentors there, uh, Bob Reed, pastor at the church that I'd been attending throughout seminary, and I said, what do you do when you don't feel like serving? When what you're called to, you just don't want to do it. He said, well, you do it anyway. So that's a great question. You do it anyway. Because the feelings that we have come and go. And while science tells us that they are the first things, the first reactions that we have, we often have to push through our own desires for what we want to do the thing that God is calling us to do. This happens in worship especially. Eugene Peterson says, Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. Our worship, our affections being directed to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is a hard thing. We don't always feel like it. And everything and everyone is vying for our affections in this world. Every TV show, every commercial, every sporting event and team, every job, every freaking thing there is vies for our attention and our worship. Merely opening up our phones, we can get lost in the Amazon of our affections if we don't have a direction. So many times I pull out my phone to do something and immediately forget what I actually wanted to do with it. Keeping our affections on the God who made us, the God who loves us, the God who redeems us is the hardest part. G.K. Chesterton said the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Our worship is not just on Sunday mornings, but it's connected to the fullness of our lives. Seeing our worship connected to our whole lives is challenging. It's not just in our relationship with God, but we worship God in all of our 
relationships. This is where we find our worship, our faith worked out most um, fully. Our relationships to one another, to those closest to us, and to our possessions. Relationships are personal. Excuse me, relationships are public. Relationships are personal. And relationships are private. Relationships are public, personal, and private. Let's look at public relationships. Look at verses 1 through 3 again. The author writes, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. He uses three words here, um, and if we mix Greek and English, they all uh, alliterate a little bit. Philadelphia, Philozinia, and prison or mistreated. It's not a P, I get it. Um, you know, whatever. So Philadelphia is uh, this term love of siblings. This is not a regularly used word uh, in the Greek world. Um, it would have referred naturally to um, natural brothers and sisters, our family, our siblings that we have. However, it is definitely, we're definitely sure that the author here is using it to refer to the family of God itself. Philozinia has another um, direction to it. So it's not just those, it's not those inside the family of God, but philozinia is the love of stranger. This is a word that we get um, hospitality from. It was a strong part of the Greco-Roman culture to be able to extend hospitality to those. And he has he adds this little uh, extra phrase that some have entertained angels unaware. This harkens back to Genesis 18, where um, angels and God even come to meet Moses at the Oaks of Mamre. And when Moses, uh, excuse me, not Moses, uh, Abraham, and God tells Abraham that um, he promised to him his son, and he kind of begins to fulfill and let him in on what he is doing. Christine Pohl, a writer on hospitality, says, hospitality is a concrete and personal expression of Christian love intended to include strangers in a circle of care. If you've been around here for any time, you know you've heard me talk about hospitality quite a bit. Hospitality, um, I believe, encompasses all three of these terms, uh, Philadelphia, Philozinia, and how we identify and care for those who are imprisoned. It, is the, it has both a direction to it and a purpose Philozinia is the love of a stranger. So we love strangers, people that we don't yet know, in order that they become family and become a part of our lives. There is a direction and a purpose to it. The inns of the ancient uh, Near East, where travelers would stay, were always of doubtful repute. You, you didn't know what your safety... It would be staying like staying in a, a Motel 6 these days, or some other random motel along the highway. And many would seek lodging in private dwellings whenever that was possible. So these instructions were not merely sentiments or an emotional responses for people to have, but attitudes and postures that they would show in tangible behaviors to one another. Jesus' teaching on hospitality emphasized welcoming those, especially who could not repay you. Has anybody seen the, the show The Bear on Hulu? At least one episode now, so few people. Okay, so brother, or not brother, cousin, or Richie, Richard in the show. 
is uh, learn has to learn about hospitality, and um, he's the most jaded person in the show as we watch it. He doesn't know what his cousin Carmi is going to do as he changes this restaurant from being this uh, Italian beef shop, which are found all over Chicago, to a fine dining place. And he's been struggling to find his place, his position, what his purpose is in this new restaurant that's, to, that's being built out through the second season. And so Carmi, his cousin, sends him to stage or to be trained at a three-star Michelin restaurant that was named the best in the world when it opened the same year. And Garrett, the guy overseeing him, tells him, um, and, and Richard is just not getting it. He is, he is why, why do I have to polish forks? I'm 45 years old. This is ridiculous. And so Garrett, the guy overseeing him, um, takes him out. Uh, side out back to be able to tell him why he's doing this and he says look I was an alcoholic I finally got clean and in the process I learned about acts of service and uh, Garrett had a mentor that said told him taking care of people at the highest level is like working at a hospital it's like medicine and Richie kind of rebuffs this and in his usual way uh, but Garrett goes on. He goes, I'm just saying, that's why I think restaurants and hospitals use the same word, hospitality. And you begin to see Richie understand, and you begin to see him take on an understanding of what hospitality and what it means to be able to care for people in a way that is healing to their lives. The admonition here in Hebrews is to keep on, don't forget, continue it can be easy in our fast-paced world not to slow down enough to meet the needs uh, of care for those who need it. Churches, after all, have benevolence funds. Hotels are, are available. Prison ministries abound. Why do we need to slow down and care for others? It's because, I believe, hospitality, sharing our tables with those around us, is the strongest apologetic venue for the gospel we have today. If we are willing to eat and share a table with one another, to invite people into our home in a way that is not transactional, but is able to form real relationships, we are able to share our lives and therefore the life that we have in Christ as well. This is not a transactional thing, but it is a warm, genuine, healing, and loving thing. The epistle of Diognetus we have is an early Christian apologetic letter. We don't really know who wrote it, uh, but we have it. And in it, he writes, They have a common table, but not a common bed. They share their food, but not their wives. Relationships are public, but we also have personal relationships as well. Look at verse 4. The author writes, Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The author writes that marriage be honored among all. This word honored means of exceptional value or highly prized. He writes that the marriage bed be undefiled, that it would be kept pure. This is a demand that the sexual integrity of the marriage relationship be kept pure, not just the legal or relational contract of marriage. He uses two more uh, terms. 
the first one is pornoi. This just is a catch-all word. That means sexually immoral. It is any kind of sex that is outside of God's design. It's where we get uh, the first part of the word pornography. Porn, porneo is the, the root word. He uses the word moikoi. This refers to adulterers, those who are unfaithful in their marriage. And essentially what he's doing is he's using these two terms to cover all who engage in illicit sexual behavior. One commentator says, As a rejection of the presence and goodness of God, sexual immorality is an expression of selfishness and involves setting personal gratification above responsibility to God and the Christian community. As it does today, this went against every grain of Greco-Roman culture and society. There was no shortage of sex then. Unmarried relationships were common and often expected. A good deal of this behavior took place in and around the pagan temples. It was a part of their worship. Plato held that pederasty was the highest form of love. This uh, design or this this uh, understanding of sex was woven into the fabric of society. And the Judeo-Christian understanding of sex saw this behavior as dark and dehumanizing, distorting God's intention for marital sexual relationships. N.T. Wright writes, excuse me, sex was given for the mutual and outward-looking delight of a husband and wife. Outward-looking because like God's love, the love of spouses generates new creation, both in the procreation of children and in the creation of a warm, secure, and hospitable home. Our personal Relationships create the space for our public ones. It goes without saying that this is not just in the past and maybe has come full circles in some instances. NPR last week had an article entitled, What to Know if You're Exploring Non-Monogamy. They go on to describe relationships from various friendships to varied sexual relationships. And this might put me in the curmudgeon category, but it sounds overly confident complicated, and just intensely fraught with disaster. And what the world would label as freedom, Scripture labels as sin, and worthy of God's judgment. Our sexual ethic is a strong witness to the culture around us. It often seems that this has turned political and all of that, but it reflects the covenantal commitment that God has for us. I don't expect, I don't think we should expect, that non-Christians hold to the same sexual ethic that God does. It's, that would be like enforcing abstinence, and that just does not work. However, as Christians, we've always upheld the, the virtue of self-control as one of the ninefold fruits of the Spirit. Self-control is actively denying our selfish urges for a greater joy. The real killing of joy comes with grabbing at cheap pleasures. That we would not be hungry for our own desires, but aware of what it means to create a hospitable environment where people aren't felt taken advantage of, but where people feel loved and protected. There is a lot that I am not able to say about this this morning. There is a lot... um, to, to say on the topic of sexual relationships as well. If you want to talk more, we can do that. 
But I want to turn our attention to something even more private, our money, our hearts. Uh, the author writes, should be kept free from the love of money. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Keeping free from the love of money has a similar root to Philozinia in Philadelphia. Philargeria, I practice that word a lot. It's still very challenging. Philargeria, the word has the same structure as Philadelphia and Philozinia, the love of something. In contrast, we are told to be content. Now, Stoics would say we need to be content for the sake of self-sufficiency, that we don't have to rely on anyone else. But Hebrews tells us to be content so that we can share our possessions with others. My parents were Midwestern, so we never talked about money unless it was something how expensive something is nowadays or how much money they have saved on something. But Jesus regularly talked about money. He warned us about making money or possessions the center of our emotions. In his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot serve God and money. He knew that our hearts would get pulled in opposite directions on these things. This was a marker of the early church. In Acts 2, Peter had just preached his inaugural Pentecost sermon, and Luke summarizes all that had taken place when he says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The opposite of contentment is consumerism. The lie of consumerism is twofold, at least, that we're the ones consuming things when, in fact, I believe we are the ones being consumed by the things that we buy. We wrap our identity, our happiness, our security in those things, and yet when they fail us, we lose our identity. Number two, when we, have, we will have more joy in our lives with just one more thing. Early on in our marriage, um, I wanted to buy an iPad. There's, that was the first of many things I wanted to buy in our marriage. Um, but I wanted to buy an iPad. I thought it would, I would be able to work easier. It would make my life uh, so much something more, I guess, ultimately. It would just be so much better. And I got it and I, got other, I bought it and got other news that day, I think, as well, and came home. And Stacy had been at work, and she came home, and she goes, I thought you would be happy by buying this iPad, and I wasn't, because it couldn't save my soul. How much money is enough? For John D. Rockefeller, the answer was just a little bit more. At the peak of his wealth, Rockefeller had a net worth of about 1% of the entire U.S. economy. He owned 90% of all the oil and gas industry at the time, compared to like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and 
all the guys that have all the money. Um, they look like it, Rockefeller made makes them look like paupers, and yet he still wanted just a little bit more. It's never enough. Instead of consumerism, as Christians, we are called to practice contentment. This was, um, I don't usually do things like this, but um, I felt God calling me to contentment this year. And so I chose this as my word. Uh, contentment is giving thanks for what we have, not begrudging the things we don't have. Um, I wasn't perfect in this. Um, I still purchase things. Um, but having that as a focus allowed me to uh, begin to see that life is a lot more than just what we don't have. It began to allow me to appreciate the things, uh, the gifts that God has given me, and it quelled my heart of the rat race of just wanting more. Contentment is the seedbed of hospitality, the marriage bed honoring home that allows us to share the gifts that God has given us with those in need. I think we only find false security in our things rather than the security we desire in God who generously and sacrificially gives of himself to his beloved children. C.S. Lewis said, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Excuse me, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. See, the kingdom of God flips the values of the world on its head. Instead of closed homes, we have open homes. Instead of open beds, we have closed beds. Instead of closed wallets, we have open wallets. Where the world says to be chaste, God says be promiscuous. Where the world says to be promiscuous, God says to be chaste. The question is, how do we do this? Like, it's great to be able to love publicly, personally, and privately, but there's one more relationship that we must have, and that is the presence of God in our lives. Verse 6, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? It's having confidence in God's presence with us. Throughout Hebrews, the author has encouraged us to have confidence. In chapter 3, he said, hold firmly to your confidence. In chapter 4, he said, approach God's throne with confidence. In chapter 10, several times he says, have confidence to enter the most holy place. Don't throw away your confidence this is the confidence that we have. The Lord is my helper. This phrase comes from Psalm 118, which begins with a call for Israel to say, His steadfast love endures forever. Before verse 6, stating that the Lord is my helper. This psalm is used throughout the New Testament. The psalmist speaks of being persecuted and his need for trust and hope. It is the divine help that the psalmist is needing, the help that God has promised to him by assuredly coming to the throne of God to receive the grace and mercy that he needs in his life. 
finally we get kind of a reverse of the warnings that the author of Hebrews has been giving us. Right? He's been warning us, don't drift away. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sins. Don't fall away. Don't shrink back and be destroyed. Be, don't be, or, or be like all of those who did not lose faith in chapter 11. Chapter 12, he begins, let's run the race set before us. Don't grow weary. Don't refuse him who is speaking. Now he gives the promise of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And is that not our fear? That we would be left alone, that we would be abandoned, that if we give up so much of ourselves and our hospitality in our um, contentment, being generous with others, that we would hold our marriage beds privately or personally to ourselves. We so often grasp for things or people that comfort our hearts and we refuse to love in a way that is vulnerable because we know that eventually people will hurt us again. This is a learned trauma response and not how it's supposed to be. Um, many of you know at least part of the story of us leaving Atlanta and our time finishing there. Um, it was an incredibly painful process. Incredibly, We had tons of close-knit relationships, and we just began to see those strip away uh, from ourselves. And in one of my um, sessions with my counselor at the time, I said, I have a choice. I have to make it. Am I going to love again, or am I just going to bar off everything from my heart and never be vulnerable again? What choice would I make? The only reason that I could love again is because I know that even though people may love me, leave me, excuse me, even though loving them might hurt, that God would never leave me or forsake me. All of us are on the brink of needing to make this choice again and again and again in our lives. No matter what you are going through in life, God will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, more than that, He is your helper. He will be with you through it. He will give you the grace and mercy and love that you need to get through life. What can man do to me? Eugene Peterson says, All the persons of faith that I know are sinners, doubters, uneven performers. We are not secure because we are sure of ourselves, but because we trust that God is sure of us. The reason we can love our brothers and sisters, the reason we can extend hospitality, the reason we can identify and care for those who are imprisoned, that we can keep our sexual relationships honorable, that we can find contentment, is that God will never leave us or forsake us. We can trust this to be true because he himself in Jesus, his son, was forsaken on the cross that we might know the promise of his presence. And he will help us when we need it. He is near to us. He will not abandon you. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy that you pour out upon us. That even though we run 
um, and try to escape you, that even though we um, do not open our homes and our lives to others, that even though we um, are uh, um, adulterous in our hearts and maybe more, Lord, even though we are not generous in our hearts, but try to grab at more things to be able to um, comfort ourselves, we pray that your peace of being with us, your presence, that we would know it, that we would feel it by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might see that Jesus was forsaken on our behalf so that we may know that you promise to be with us through our faith in you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.